0: Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center L3C. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Bridging Chicago, a podcast produced by the SATC Solution Center. I am Savannah Roundtree, the law clerk at SATC, and I am your host. Sitting here with me today, we have also a partner at our law firm, Andy Annis. Thank you for sitting with us today.
1: Thank you, Savannah.
0: And today our guest is Stan Nitzberg. Stan, thank you for joining us today.
2: Absolute pleasure.
0: Uh, Stan is the principal at MidAmerica Real Estate Group, where He works on many North Michigan Avenue locations and has been involved in over $2 billion of retail investment sales transactions and is also the six-time recipient of Chicago Market Retail Broker of the Year. Um, But before we get to how that has all transpired, we're gonna start at sort of the beginning, how you got into this whole business world. So I looked into your education a little bit And you went to school at State University of New York at Albany and got an MBA from UNC Chapel Hill. So I'm gonna guess you're not a Chicago native?
2: Born and raised in Brooklyn.
0: Okay. Why did you go to UNC Chapel Hill? That's a little bit out of the way from New York to get an MBA.
2: Because I was a math major at school, in undergraduate school. And when we went from uh, numbers to abstract math, my math professor said, why don't you go to business school instead? (laughs) so I this was still undergraduate so junior year I started taking finance and accounting and what have you and then the uh, business program at Albany uh, just hired a PhD candidate to teach from University of North Carolina okay and they heard about the business school they said why don't you apply to the business school so I applied business school and that was back in the uh, fall of 1972
0: right so when you're there um, I don't really know how an MBA works, I guess, but did you have like a specialty? Did you have an idea that you would be going into this sort of like retail, uh, broking market?
2: Nothing in my life has been planned. <laughs>
0: Nothing. <laughs> All right, so the next thing that I've been able to glean from your bio is that you were at First National Bank of Chicago. So do you want to tell me a little bit about the transition from business school to getting there?
2: <laughs> okay, so the true story is, the bank, First National Bank Chicago, this is back when there was no branch banking. Okay, for those okay. of you who were, don't understand that, with mobile banking today, uh, was down interviewing uh, second year students at Carolina to go work in the Atlanta regional offices. when banks had regional offices for commercial banking um, mm-hmm. in major cities. Um, we happen to have a first year, I was a first year uh, book of the MBA students. Okay. First National Bank of Chicago was known for its training at the time. They had both a First Scholar program and a Summer Intern program.
0: Okay.
2: Uh, so I was called to go meet some of the recruiters for the Summer Intern program. I took them down the Rathskeller, which was in a basement with uh, sweet tea and white bread <laughs> and uh, hush puppies. We drank a lot of beer, and I called them up the next morning and thanked them for the job. Really? That's it. That's the story.
0: All right, so then
2: you Move moved to, to Chicago K- for the summer of seventy. What would that be? Three summer of seventy-three. Sure, so just a
0: summer program, and the, was this already with the idea that you would go there? No idea. Never been to or Chicago. Or you know never been to here. Chicago before.
2: No. I even got off uh, the Dan the uh, Tollway at State Street down uh-huh. the South Side and drove up State wow. Street from the. <laughs> Skyway. Quite a, yeah, um, it was quite an experience. Stayed yeah, at the Palmer uh, House my entry first night. To
0: Chicago. Yeah. Very yeah. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, so I'm guessing you liked your summer there enough summer. to stay on. <laughs> yeah, well. I worked
2: six weeks during the winter break, and the last day was maybe a job offer. I accepted it. Came to work in uh, June of '75, full time.
0: Okay, and so I know you eventually became the division head of the. Um, retail industry lending division and so were you always in that division was uh retail another thing you just sort of fell into or did you have an idea that that might be something you were interested in i got
2: assigned to what then was called division b like boy Mm -hmm. the bank was very specialized at the time so every industry had its own lending group Uh, so this was a retail merchandising wholesalers manufacturing for retail distribution Mm -hmm. group I worked there for a while. I was in strategic planning. I had some other assignments, that, you know, as time progressed. Okay, yes.
0: and sort of in the the brokerage arena, what is your, or like, what is your, uh, how do you fit into the transactions at this point? You're just working on the lending side. Like, um, do people come to you? They're just asking for loans, or what?
2: it was a sales job you know, you're okay. out building business making loans providing bank services but i was only doing it specifically with retailers around the united states okay so walmart was a customer and names that don't exist anymore they're probably <laughs> part of macy's but all the great old department stores in each parts of the country carter holly hale uh, dh homes in new orleans ivy's in north carolina you know at the time it was a very fragmented industry and the bank was the leading lender to the retail and merchandising industry at the time.
0: Okay, so you're working on loans all around the country, not just in Chicago? All around the country. Okay, how do you you move again, and then you're working at Crate and Barrel eventually? Right. How does that transition work?
2: I was um, thinking at the time, I probably wasn't gonna spend my life as a banker because I didn't know how to play golf. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I grew up in Brooklyn, no, there are no golf courses. I'm in the golf course with you. You
1: know how to play golf.
2: Anyway, <laughs> at the time, I had no idea even what a golf course looked like. And I just had this view of what a banker would be like back in those times. And uh, I was actually uh, going to work, had received a job offer from one of my clients in Cincinnati. Okay. Vivian, my wife, who's a very talented banker also, uh, really back in that time, which was the early 80s, was not going to get a job in Cincinnati like she had here at the First right. National Bank of Chicago. Decided not to take it. The day I called my client, I got a call from Gordon Siegel at Crate and Barrel saying he got my name from one of the uh, executives at the bank who was my mentor, who probably knew I didn't want to stay a banker. and <laughs> you know, He introduced me to Gordon, and I went to work at Crate and Barrel in uh, May of 84.
1: Okay. What was Crate and Barrel like in May of 84?
2: 13 stores, and let's just say... 40 million in revenue or less.
1: Wow. Quite a leap from there to what they ended up with now.
2: Yeah, that's terrific, terrific group that built that company, you know, and then uh, uh, sold it over time Mm -hmm. from 1998 to 2008 to a private German family. But it's just an amazing place.
0: Yeah, so I think I read that you were integral into getting their storefront set up in downtown Chicago. Is that correct?
2: Well, it was... um, the michigan avenue store Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a store on michigan avenue it was i think the third store in the chain Uh, you know number 103 at chestnut michigan 840 north michigan Uh, there were some issues about renewing and building it right and um, spent six or nine months strategizing with gordon and we made the very unique and bold uh, decision uh, gordon and the family and the executives did to buy the property where. The store had been oh, okay. from yeah. September 1990 until it closed earlier this year. Yeah.
0: Um, and so how do you go about making a decision like that? Um, what sort of things do you have to weigh when you're considering? Because I guess most places on Michigan Avenue are leased rather than the companies buying the space outright.
2: Well, many of my retail clients um, were very focused on controlling their own real estate so that they mm-hmm. can make decisions as time went on. And even back then, the relative rents were such that why make a landlord rich when you could control your own density? (laughs) Uh, It's it's a long story. It involved U.S. equities and Bob Whistlow and Camille Jumi, who uh, were very integral into the decision-making. Yet in the final analysis, being able to create your own building and your own Mm -hmm. image, uh, your own presentation, and not have a tower on top of you and let Crate and Barrel speak to who and what it was, was more important than anything else. It was a very bold move because... Uh, you know, it's a large purchase economically and, uh, you know, a big decision uh, relative to the store.
0: Yeah, a very large purchase, especially because Crate and Barrel, it was five stories at the time. Did it take the whole building?
2: Yeah, it was built solely for Crate and Barrel. Yeah, Yeah, basement, four stories, and a little rooftop.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that's, when you're thinking about that much space, a lot different decision than just a smaller storefront that you see on a lot of places on Michigan Avenue. But it turned
2: out well for everyone over time, I think.
0: Yeah, and so then you move on to uh, working at Mid-America, where you still are. So that's in 1991, which is uh, mid America. time. Mid-America started in 1984. So you're sort of... You're there within the first few years of it starting as well. So um, tell me some about the move from Crate and Barrel to Mid-America. Did you sort of get a taste for the retail space more, figuring out that Crate and Barrel situation? Um
2: well, it wasn't necessarily planned either, like okay. you know, getting a job or getting a phone call to go to Crate. Uh, you know, Gordon and I just made a decision that it was probably uh, good to evolve my career at Crate. I'd always loved retailing, mm-hmm. uh, and but I got a taste for real estate at Crate and Barrel.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, it was easy, of course, because you work at Crate and Barrel, everybody was in <laughs> love with you, but um, over the concept. So I was just thinking about how can I take my retail interest and expertise and love and enjoyment of real estate and try to see what I do with it next.
0: Yeah. so that led you to Mid America you just well it led me
2: to a lot uh luckily a lot of interviews, but most of them had big black binders behind the person I was interviewing with of
0: uh-huh. uh,
2: budget books and strategy <laughs> sure. books and having been a banker and then gone a <laughs> crate and barrel, the last thing I had an interest to do was go work and do budgets and financial analysis and be in a corporate environment. And I happen to have the card of Mike, Mike George, who's one of the two founders, with Dave Bossy of Mid-America Real Estate back yeah. in 84. And we had lunch, uh, breakfast at Mitchell's up on Clybourne and Armitage, and Mike was evolving the investment sales business in Mid-America at the time, okay. selling of shopping centers. Yeah. And since I was a banker, and I had retail expertise or interest, It just made sense that I'd give it a go, and I had a very supporting wife, Vivian, and two kids and a mortgage, and we tried it. (laughs) (laughs) We
0: thought we'd just try this real estate brokerage thing. (laughs) All right. So MidAmerica is the leading full-service retail uh, real estate organization in the Midwest, and since you've been there for a long time, I would think that you've probably helped to shape a lot of the direction that they've gone. I guess you've done it a lot with downtown urban real estate, but... um, how have you sort of seen yourself shaping the way this company has been going?
2: Well, uh, not speaking necessarily just for myself, but particularly for Mike, who can't speak for himself right here today. Uh, it was really nurturing uh, a company where great people who wanted to be in the brokerage business mm-hmm. could come and do their business and do it in an environment that was very supportive and let the business evolve from that. So while Mike and I sort of started the investment business, we we found that... Uh, we could attract some really talented people who wanted to build their careers there, and they've done that. You know, we probably have the strongest uh, non-mall investment sales business and retail in the Midwest, and that's due to all the people that were attracted to Mid-America and you know took over from Mike and I. The same thing applies, whether it be in the management company or in our tenant rep business, et cetera, mm-hmm. that we've developed. It's all just good people.
0: Yeah. So you just mentioned that you do a lot of non-mall things, and so... Uh, Historically, a lot of retail leasing, I would guess, would be within these larger shopping centers or in malls. And I know that you specifically do a lot of work on uh, North Michigan Avenue, sort of the Magnificent Mile. So um, how is that sort of a different space to be operating in than in the sort of more structured like shopping center area?
2: Well, the concepts are the same. So brokerage is very simple business. Mm -hmm. You provide really good information that's timely and accurate to your clients, help them make a really good decision. Hopefully uh, uh, they benefit from it and they're willing to pay you for having given them that information. Yeah. There's nothing more magical to the business than that. It's all about information helping people you know, do well with the real estate, whether they're a tenant, a landlord, seller of real estate, a buyer of real estate, somebody building real estate, developers, uh, the vendors who serve. Their mm-hmm. clients in, real, in retail real estate. That's what it's all about. So in a way, whether you're working in a mall, so you have a client that you're representing as a tenant and putting them in a shopping a mall. Sure. Or you're putting them in a power center or in a strip center or on Michigan Avenue. It's all the same big concept. You're just dealing a little different geography and a little different thought process as to maybe who the tenant uh, mix is, but of who you're representing.
0: Yeah, tell me a little bit more about um, thinking about tenant mix, because I know that you've done or been involved in a lot of the transactions that happen in North Michigan Avenue, which is like a major spance for shopping. And so do you think about what stores are going next to each other or where they're going to be located on Michigan Avenue when you're looking for tenants in these spots?
2: So let's look at it from the retailer's standpoint, first of all. Um, You can't tell a retailer what to do. Sure, so I'll use this example And office folks, excuse me. If you're representing a law firm, or if you've got a space and a law firm's looking at it let, in, in this example, and they're right across the street from each other in the Class A buildings and parking garages and uh, whatever amenities else are there today, you uh-huh. know, exercise rooms and bike rooms and uh, food and beverage, a dollar square foot in the deal in rent or $10 a square foot in TI may sway that firm. With regardless what kind of firm it is, to go from one building to the other. Sure. They don't care if they're on this side of Wacker or that side. Right. Pretty much mm-hmm. use the same, let's say, those yeah. things. Retail, you could discount a rent by half, but the emotion and aesthetics of a site is what's going to make a retailer decide where they want to go.
0: Yeah,
2: Some retailers want to be only on the west side of Michigan Avenue. Some want to be on the east. Some want to be next to this tenant. No matter what the alternatives might be in the economics, you're not going to be able to move them economic-type reasons. It's aesthetics, personalities, and emotions, what we learned to call APE. (laughs) Okay. A-P-E, aesthetics, personality, emotions. And when you get through all of that, then E becomes economics. Mm -hmm. So it's aesthetics, personality, and economics.
0: Okay. So
2: that usually comes last in retail.
0: The economics comes last in retail? Yeah, because you have
2: to get them over the subjective parts of the deal first. So, yes, you think about tenant mix, but unlike a mall or even a power center where you're trying to blend uses... The street lends itself to, uh, yes, segmenting a little, but over time now, tenants will evolve to whatever location kind of fits them. A good merchant will do, any, well, anywhere on Michigan Avenue. Mm-hmm. So a luxury tenant might feel better being up north next to Louis Vuitton and Gucci and Max Mara. Yeah. But then Ferragamo and Zenya do very well, and they're across the street from Under Armour. So yeah. <laughs> uh, just to pick you know, some examples. But you do think about it but less so when you're on the street than you are in a uh, closed environment or uh, an environment that's maybe even a little smaller but the tenants will make the decision for you
0: okay um so while you've been doing all this uh work is there one space that's been your most interesting or your most challenging to work on
2: there are a couple i'm very proud of sure uh you know crate would have been one and it's time when i worked at crate um, First one I did when I came to Mid-America mm-hmm. has always had a very fond spot in my heart. Yeah. Uh, it's Southwest Corner of, uh, State Madison. Okay. Uh, it was originally uh, an SS Kresge building off the corner and a building called the Chicago Building at the Southwest Corner.
0: The
2: mm-hmm. uh, Chicago Building was totally vacant. Okay. Uh, and in disrepair, Kresge at the time was like a Woolworths. Okay. Uh, at best, or maybe mm-hmm. a champ sports, yeah. <laughs> goes back to the early 1990s. Um, uh, through my associates, I was aware that Toys R Us, which had just opened up a store in New York, was thinking about urban strategies, and Chicago was a really good market for it. Mm-hmm. And so I went to everybody. The property was owned by the Board of Education,
1: okay.
2: uh, the Chicago building, which was a turn-of-century building, Holliburton route, uh, the old Mayor Daley. Uh, okay. Uh, didn't want it torn down, uh, so I went and read every report and went to all the major developers in town. Everybody told me why it couldn't get done, and the Chicago Building had to stay, but it couldn't be put back to use and whatever. So I was lucky enough, one, to have the benefit of uh, you know, my partners who had the Toys R Us relationship, and then I went to see a gentleman named Bill Smith who had since passed and explained to him that um, I had this idea. I just got into the brokerage business, uh-huh. told him about, to- uh, and I basically looked in him. And I just met Bill because I had done the Cray Barrel Outlet Store a couple years earlier up in North and Halstead. Mm-hmm. But I had been to everyone. Yeah. Uh, and I went to Bill, who I knew casually, but I knew he did development. And I said, um, I need someone with political connections because the mayor and the board of Ed was involved. I need someone with construction expertise because... The building everybody tells me can't be saved and yet the mayor doesn't want to take it down that was our understanding I need somebody with some money
0: yeah uh, because I didn't have
2: any Uh, and if you'll excuse me I need someone since I didn't have any control Mm. I didn't have a listing or anything I I needed someone who wouldn't F me (laughs) which happens in the brokerage business yeah and Bill turns around gets on the phone turns around about a minute later and said we can do this deal and we ended up uh, tearing down that old Kresge building. That's where Toys R Us kids are went. And we ended up, luckily, through Vivian's relationship with the Art Institute and a lot of one degree of separations, building the first residence hall for the Art Institute in the Chicago building, which was then that property. The Chicago building was then sold to the Art Institute. Okay. And then I found out later that Bill uh, you know, had good political connections. Had great construction expertise didn't have mm-hmm. me but he didn't have any money either <laughs>
0: <laughs> almost there
2: almost there but we got it done good yeah so it was sort of uh you know one that's your like first love and yeah. it was a very unique deal and a time when state street still wasn't that strong right uh there were no residents of any sort let alone students you know mm-hmm. living on the street and um it's still there so
0: cool yeah that sounds like a pretty complicated deal to be your first one as yeah, well, well I had
2: Bill Smith to rely on so you know I just had to take care of the leasing
0: yeah so how I mean you've been in this business now for a while quite a long time and so how have you seen the sh- sort of Chicago real estate market evolved during that time I mean you just said that um, you know State Street was different than than it is now so tell us a little bit about that
2: like many cities but particularly Chicago because of the benefit of its the way the land was laid out and Mm -hmm. uh, the manufacturing and industrial and parking lots and everything near its core it just had an unbelievable opportunity to build an urban environment and it's done so from the neighborhoods you know up at Southport and Roscoe Village and Lakeview down through Hyde Park now let alone in the city and River North and Streeterville Mm -hmm. it's been remarkable Yes, you know, there's amazing construction in San Francisco or New York or Boston, but Chicago has been unique in that way and we have a great transportation system. So it's yeah. really all blended together very beautifully. And I think everyone who's participated pretty much over the years, except for the dark period of 08, 09 or 07, uh, whether you be an office or industrial or residential or retail, you know, has benefited from that. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, now with the coming of potentially Lincoln Yards, And the 78 by related, Mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln Yards being Sterling Bay and 78 related property down on Roosevelt Road, you know, just further solidifies how strong, you know, the city has become for all mixed use and commercial and real estate related activities. Yeah. It's really sweet to watch.
0: Yeah. So you were just talking about Toys R Us, and I know that they have recently gone bankrupt and so they don't have any more brick and mortar stores. We've had... We hear a lot of conversation about brick and mortar stores not being maybe relevant anymore or people aren't using them anymore do you see that happening in chicago do you think there's going to be a change in the way that space is being used downtown
2: so i have two answers for that okay which i've thought of a great deal
0: i would imagine uh,
2: so first of all i don't think any of us know sure because things evolve and change and cycle certainly we, we can feel it as it's happening but you can't really, it's hard to predict the future. So uh, if stores are right-sized, meaning if they were too big for what they needed to be and they can restructure themselves, they'll always be an electronics store, or a furniture store, or a food store, there'll be need for that. They'll just be rationalized to what they need to be going forward, and that'll change the landscape a little. Uh, but the example I like to use is that, you're probably too young to have watched Western movies with John Wayne, well, my mom's a big fan, so I say okay, Apple. Okay, Bonanza reruns or something, yeah. or uh, Kevin Costner and something. But think of an old Western town. Okay. okay? Cowboy rides in, the stagecoach comes in, right? First thing they do is that same place park, right? Then they want somewhere to eat. Then they want to uh, stay somewhere. Then they need to buy some merchandise. So, all the elements of everything we talked about about mixed-use development or a related 78 or, um, you know, an interior mixed-use mall with high-rises and condos above it on Michigan Avenue or in Streeterville. Nothing has changed in 150 years, 200 years, something like that. No, 200 years would be too much. But from the 1800s to now, the concept of a mixed-use development is an old western town just that now we'll have driverless cars afraid of horses yeah. and you know no carriages i've been to and, that
1: old western town stand yeah. it's called laramie wyoming yeah. and it still exists and i don't remember any mixed-use development
2: there but think of all the uses that are there <laughs> that is true that is true that's my point there everything is that was in the original <laughs> there's a boarding house there's a hotel there was a rest you know a restaurant there was a bar there's a general merchandise store. And
1: there are no Taco Bells or McDonald's
2: right. or there's barely a Starbucks. Right. But you could get a cup of coffee, you get a shot of whiskey, you could have your horse boarded and taken care of and you wrapped it you know, you rope up around the little stanchion and you parked your true. horse. Nothing about that original development of the Western town is any different than anything we're building now, except the technology, the size, and who and what's in there. So it's a long way of saying, you know, Will Toys R Us come back. I think there's an article in the paper. They're trying to revive. In fact,
1: this week there's somebody that is uh, rejuvenating the stores and and reopening some of the stores. So, carrying some of the name rights, I guess.
2: So it'll evolve. It'll come back. It'll be here. But right now, your instincts would be, my instincts, a lot of people's instincts. If you were a chief executive at a retail company today, and you were going into a board meeting, and you had a choice to make an investment in e-commerce customer service or brick-and-mortar store with a 10-year lease, the 10-year brick-and-mortar store probably would get less attention than the other two. Generally speaking, across most retailers.
0: So does that shape the way that you are looking for tenants?
2: More how you, uh, yeah, if you are representing a space, so if you're working as an agent on behalf of a landlord, the demand for retail is significantly less than it's has ever been in my career. Okay. Uh, and they're very specific at what they want to do, and they're very attuned to the economics. Yeah. Uh, not that you can't get deals done. You just right. need to be in a position where you can bring the bid and ask in terms closer together than they used to be. Yeah. That's been a transition, but there's still demand. Yeah, I
0: definitely see some transition in the retail space, especially, I mean, Amazon just opened up a store. Second on Franklin, one. And they which, just opened it on Clark yeah, Street. It has no cashiers or anything. But you never think of Amazon would be having a brick and mortar store. But
2: here we are. Google's opening some stores. There's, there's just everybody wants, you know, they're testing technology. I saw an ad on TV the other night for Nissan, maybe. And it said, "We don't build cars. We build technology that moves." I thought that was kind of cute. Like the old days, the railroads realized that. Think
1: I think I've seen that. Yes.
2: Like the, old, the when I went to business school, they you know use the example. The railroads got smart and they realized they weren't railroads; they were transportation companies. And while that may sound like a choice of words mm-hmm. or semantics, it's not. It's not. So, whatever Amazon Go becomes or other concepts like that, it'll evolve, uh, and it will use technology to evolve what consumers need. Food and, food and beverage is all is moving heavily to delivery now. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, what does that mean for restaurants? People probably still want to socialize. Yeah. The but spaces can,
1: will still be there. The tenant's use will still be there. It's going to change as to how they're going to use the spaces. I think in terms of restoration hardware, where they went to a concept of not selling from their store or their location, but using it as just basically a live catalog, you walk through you look at the merchandise and then you order it and they deliver it to you but you can't buy anything from the store another way of using the space that's not necessarily the traditional retail use i assume
2: yeah uh the industry and people related to like talk about the experience now of retail well for, so restoration hardware up on dearborn or state dearborn i think it is uh in the old mansion is an experience Okay, but ten years from now, can you get that experience by putting on a pair of goggles? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't
0: so know. So
2: the experience will evolve with technology, mm-hmm. but the concept will never change of, of, you know, what the consumer wants and the idea of um, the product and what's important in terms of price point, et cetera. All
0: right. So if someone right now was looking to get into sort of being a retail broker, what advice would you give them?
2: It's a fair question since I went through that with my sons a couple of years ago. We obviously have a lot of young brokers in our company or people that you mentor who are uh, children of friends, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So first um, first thing that's important for me to share, and this is just my point of view, is you really have to understand what your personality is and how much risk you're willing to take. Okay. And you have a personality that's willing to accept a lot more no's than yeses. Sure. And you're willing to take the risk of moving up and down with markets. And that's very difficult to analyze, you know, as a young person. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: And then it evolves, truthfully, when you get married, and if you get married, and if you end up having children, and you end up having children and buying a house, the the dynamics change over time. Uh, But you have to ask yourself just really deep down what your personality is and try to examine that, uh, because it can be a very rewarding uh, emotionally and financially type career to have. Mm -hmm. It'll be very depressing at times, too. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: And so you have to have great balance and and great strength and belief in what you do. But, you know, how many businesses do you get to wake up in the morning and decide where and how you want to compete, where and how you want to do business, who you want to call on, uh, you know, what idea you want to create, what do you see driving down the street and you say, this could be, you know, X, Y, and Z. There aren't many opportunities you get like that other than maybe in a technology or app-related business. Yeah. And that's why brokerage is so cool.
1: Yeah.
2: And the people are great. You know, most of the people in brokerage are really good. And, you know, it's hard right now because demand—I'm talking retail. I can't speak yeah. to office or industrial, sure. etc. But because demand is a little harder uh, mm-hmm. or softer, it takes more commitment to do the job. Sure. And it's a seven-day-a-week job yeah. when you're young— after you've worked all week, you're getting in the car on the weekends driving markets or walking markets or yeah. reading. You know, mm-hmm. you can't put it away on Friday night and pick it up on Monday morning. Sure. Uh, but so there's you, also no caps to what you yeah. can do and where you can do it and how much money you can make and how much fun you can have and what kind of relationships you can build.
0: Yeah. So when you walk around Chicago and you see an empty space, are you just constantly thinking about what could go there? Or?
2: The truth is... <laughs> yeah. I email one of my associates. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you still notice it.
2: You absolutely never. You always notice it.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: in fact, you know when you're young, when younger, I'm a little more advanced in my career. But you know when you take your family on vacation and you're mm-hmm. like stopping and looking at things and taking photos and. Know, jotting down notes and wanting to walk into <laughs> shopping centers or into stores you know it's just because you want it goes back to the point I made earlier mm-hmm. you always want to be learning having good information and good ideas and learning from what other people are doing and applying it for your clients here mm-hmm. uh, but yeah uh, not to be funny about it but no I have a great group of associates and partners yeah. <laughs> and they're much more capable than yeah. I am these days
0: well You touched on what was going to be my final question, but I've heard that you've recently been doing a lot of world traveling, and so when you're doing that, you still can't set it down, you're still going to look at retail spaces, you notice them around?
2: Well, I don't know who gets to listen to this, but the idea that I'm retired is not true. The second idea that Vivian and I spend a lot of time in Arizona is not true either. We probably spend less than 45 days a year there, if not 30. Uh... Uh, but we do like to travel, yeah. and we're at a point in our lives where that's our luxury, that we like to travel, and we uh, do it f- with friends. And if I can learn something along the way about retail, great, but if I learn something about myself or the world, even better.
1: Yeah.
2: And, you know, um, as probably is the case for a lot of people like me in terms of where we are in our careers with great partners and associates, you know, the business allows you to do that. Yeah. Uh, because you don't have to be at a desk every day, and as long as you're, can communicate with your clients, uh, yeah. you know, you can still serve them, but I love to travel.
0: Yeah. Go to Where's Thailand your, uh... a
2: couple of weeks, then Patagonia, then London, oh, then thanks. India, and then so, one a month.
0: Wow, that's a lot. Where's the, uh, your favorite place you've been recently?
2: I have no favorites.
0: No favorites? Love yeah. them all.
2: Yeah, I have one favorite city, which is London, but I have
1: really no favorite place. They're all pretty cool.
0: Okay. Well, that wraps up all my questions. Andy, did you have anything else you want to end
1: Steve Jobs said one time in a commencement address to Stanford that it was all about connecting the dots. Stan, it sounds like over your career you never really had a clear vision as to where you were going to go, but it sounds like you did a fantastic job of connecting the dots. And I did you just, say so?
2: I just got really lucky. Uh, the only <laughs> connecting dot I did was uh, asking my now wife out for dinner.
1: <laughs> she worked with at first national
2: we worked on the same floor for quite a bit of time we never knew each other and i went to work on a saturday she went to study on a saturday she was a first scholar at first national bank of chicago she was just sitting there and that was it fantastic that's the only dot i've really ever connected
1: <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right well i think uh that about wraps up for today stan thank you again so much for joining
1: us today thank you stan
2: it's always a pleasure to be here thanks
0: for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial investment legal and or professional advice no professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests you are urged to speak with your financial investment or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper-Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities.